But yes, as a general rule, I'm all for um, missing the lyrics because your eyes are on the road. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, man, I used to know the song with the back of my fucking hand. Uh, but it's been a while. And singing while sitting in a car with road noise is actually really <laughs> bad for you. Yeah, okay. Uh, it doesn't produce the best sound, but I don't give a shit. Yeah, there you go. Driving down the highway, you know what that means. It's time for superhero ethics on the road. And some magic players will have gotten that joke. Hey everybody, this is Matthew, I'm one of your hosts. Hello, I'm Jacob, and welcome to Car Talk 2, the <laughs> long-awaited sequel to Car Talk. This time we will not be talking about Supernatural, but once again Jacob and I are on the road, we are heading towards a magic event, and we thought this would be another great time to do a somewhat off-the-cuff podcast. Um, we have a good episode lined up for you, a topic that you're really going to enjoy. We have written up an outline. That outline is now on a phone that is currently being used to record it. So that outline lives in our minds, and I'm sure we will do a perfect job of following it exactly. But either way, I think we have a really good topic for you guys today. What we want to be talking about today is one of the one of these broader topics, and this is going to touch on a lot of superhero stories. But, it, but instead of looking at just one story, we want to look at a larger question, which is when you have a society or a community or a world where some people have powers and some people don't, and there's a fairly wide gulf between those populations, what happens? Like a, a couple of times now on our episodes about the Psy Corps, on our episodes about the Sokovia Accords, we've touched on this, but we've never really dived into this question of who holds power, who should hold power, how do you manage power relationships? All of these questions that come up. And so we're really excited to be talking that uh, with you guys today. Um, Jacob, what's kind of overall, what, what, you were actually the one who inspired, who uh, suggested this topic, so what, where are you kind of coming from with this? So this was this was very clearly inspired, uh, for, for anybody who knows Matthew and I uh, at all, you'll know that I was uh, pushing for Matthew to watch uh, the next arc, the next story in the Avatar series. So we've actually started watching Korra, and that sort of sparked this idea. The first season of Korra has... And we're not going to get into Korra too much because we're not done with it. Matthew's not done with it, at least. I'm done with it. <laughs> um, but there there are many other... As, as Matthew mentioned, there are many other of these situations where you've got this dynamic of some people have power, right? Some people have this agency over their world that, that uh, others don't. And it either establishes this, establishes this dichotomy of the feared powered and the... The, the fearful normals, or it establishes uh, the empowered powered, right, where they are put into positions of leadership, uh, and then you have sort of these, you know, taking a, a second tier uh, situation like you have in the Avatar world, um, where the, the people with the martial arts magic, the kung fu magic, they tend to be in more prominent positions in their areas because of their ability to do bigger and better things. Exactly. Excuse <clears throat> me. We've actually been having a lot of discussions about that in terms of like the Korra because and we're only about two-thirds of the way into the first season um, and I'm not going to give any spoilers but I'll say I am so far enjoying the show but have a very significant philosophical disagreement with the show because as Jacob said the main tension of the show right now is between the people with powers and the people who don't have powers and I find myself not much more on the side of those who don't have powers in that particular world. And again, we're going to do a full episode on that, so we're not going to get into that too much. But, but we both agree, this is a really interesting topic because it is one that keeps coming up. 
Um, and so let's just kind of start there. Let, let's kind of just name some of the the shows and, and movies and, and stories where we think we see this, because we're gonna we're gonna dive into some specific aspects. But I think it'll help to lay out for our listeners. You know, first of all, if you don't know any of these stories, just to give you a bit of the context. But even more, to kind of give you a better. We're talking about a kind of esoteric, broad topic here, so I want to narrow it down a little bit. Um, and also, go ahead. I mean, so, like, first of all, you can't talk about this topic without talking about the biggest elephant uh, being the X-Men. Yep. Right? The X-Men are, this is this is the X-Men story post, like, the, the 80s and beyond, right? Where it becomes, the predominant narrative becomes about the, the quote, normal people, the unpowered, the non-metahumans being so afraid of these people cropping up all over the place who have, you know, they can shoot fire out of their hands or they can make other people's brains explode with their minds, right? These are terrifying powers, right? That just a random person you're walking along the street could have, and that they, there are people in positions of power in the government uh, without any magic powers, right? That use this fear to institute a system of control. Right. Uh, just like with the Psychor in Babylon 5 when telepaths started appearing on Earth in that universe. And I'm really glad you started with X-Men because I think X-Men in many ways is one of the most interesting examples of this because often we are talking about a show or a movie or a story that gives us two perspectives. The people with power and the people who don't have power and they're in conflict. X-Men adds a third dynamic in a way that I think makes a lot more sense, which is it says, <clears throat> in the background, we're going to tell you that there are all sorts of people who have different reactions to these people with powers. But the main conflict is between two different groups of people with powers who are, at the end of the day, fighting about how should the people, the mutants, react to this question. In that, you know, Professor Xavier really wants to have the kind of assimilationist model, that they want to convince people, yes, mutants are different, but they're really not that different, and we can all live together in harmony. Magneto has much more the perspective of we are different, and it is mind, and with some good reason. We are a higher evolved species, and so we should be treated differently. And some tellings of Magneto, it becomes almost um, kind of Darwinistic, and he has a real, um, I think we're better than everybody else. In other tellings, and these are the ones that I admit I like more, he is more coming from a position of not mutants are better, but that mutants need to be separate because we're just not safe among the regular people. Um, but I love how X-Men you know, balances that bridge and shows us a number of different perspectives mostly among the mutants, but also it does that somewhat within the human communities. Um, I also think you mentioned another really good one, which is uh, Psychor uh, in the Babylon 5 story. And for those who are recent listeners, you may not have heard Jacob and I talk about this. Um, uh, it was uh, one of Jacob's first actual episode on the podcast where we used to rope him in. Um, interesting, a, a story on psychological manipulation. That was what I used to get him Psy into the podcast. Psychological <laughs> manipulation. Exactly. Uh, that and then like Shortly thereafter, we had an episode on on uh, robotic people, right? Yes. On like <laughs> Data and Ida and stuff like and Ava. So like you wrote me in with by like pushing all my buttons. It's kind of social funny. engineer Matthew Westbox. <laughs> there you here. go. But the the point being, for those who haven't seen it or haven't heard that episode, one of the major plot points in Babylon Five is that a few hundred years in the future, humans with telepathic abilities have emerged, and there is now a real question about how do we regulate them. Um, and I think that's another really interesting question because there again, it doesn't really make it about a good guy and a bad guy because 
it does actually a very interesting job of saying it's terrible that humanity is so afraid of the of the of the telepaths, but because humanity is so afraid of the telepaths, the human uh, the telepaths have had to be forced to all work together and do things that are utterly terrifying. Right. Um, and it becomes this kind of self-justifying loop, and you can argue which one is first. But it gives a really good breakdown because there it's it's not easy to say either one group is right or wrong. Both groups are really kind of acting in really problematic ways to to to, to that make that ba- impossible to find a balance of power between the two. Right. And part of the big problem with the psychor and the reason why it it comes to a head the way that it does is that each each situation, the, the each, each type of individual, the what the telepaths call the mundanes telepaths um, are each reacting to what the other one is doing in the negative yeah uh, so it starts off with uh, with the non-telepaths deciding that the telepaths all need to be you know corralled and contained in a particular location and the telepaths respond going okay well we're gonna while we're while we're all here in the same place let's teach each other yeah. let's let's train each other let's see if we can be a benefit to your society and then the telepaths start becoming more competent, start becoming better at this. So then the the normals start to rely on them for things like business negotiations and things like that. But the telepaths keep getting better, keep getting more proficient, and keep getting better about not not letting people know when they're using their powers and when they aren't. There's this whole performative aspect that the Psychor does where it's all like, yeah, we're not legally allowed to invade your thoughts <laughs> in this moment, but can do you know? Do you know if we're touching your mind right now? Yeah. Who's to say? And, and I think that's one of the interesting things that the Psycor also raises is, and I think it's more than an we talk about, how much does everybody else know who does or who doesn't have powers? Right. And this, I think, is at the heart and soul of one of my other favorite examples of this, uh, which is the Sokovia Accords, the MCU. Because there, one of the things that really gets pushed, and this is drawn out more in the comics than in the in the movies and TV shows, but I think it's still there, is the idea of it's not just a quest that, that one of the things that people find scariest is not just that there are other humans out there who have far more powers than I do, but that I won't know it. Right. And so if someone does something, it's going to be hard for me to figure out who did it, and I don't know when I'm in danger and when I'm not. And I think that raises a whole other issue because... On the one hand, if you think about all the different ways that people might be afraid of other people with powers, and one of the ways they could do that, one of the ways they could respond to that, in my mind, at first glance, saying, well, all we're going to do is say, we just want to register who has powers and who doesn't, just so we can keep track, we're not going to put any other limitations on. That seems fairly benign compared to some of the other limitations that could, that could happen until you realize what a fundamental invasion of privacy that is and how badly that kind of registering of different people in the past has always gone. And it, and it makes a very, it makes it very easy if you've got a list, here's all the potential problems is the way you can look at that list. Right. You've got them all in one handy dandy location and people can get access to that even if it's not, you know, even if it's not your government, even if it's not people in power. If You've got all of those, all that information in one location. If somebody can access it, yep. Now they have the power to to enact enact change that they think is correct on a lump group of people, all because you decided to 
to put them on a list, right? right. To say these people need to go on a list for all of our protection and safety. And I would say, so, and that would be another one we bring up. The other one that I'm going to really want to bring up, and then Jacob, tell me if there's any more that you haven't mentioned. Um, uh, on Car Talk here, you're going to hear our, our helpful friend in the car telling us when toll booths are coming up. Um, but in the DC universe, um, and this comes out, as I said, mostly in the TV show of Superman, the animated, the, uh, and then um, Batman, the animated series, and especially in um, the Justice League animated show. Um, and then... Uh, in what I think is one of the few really good points about this movie, in the Suicide Squad movie as well, um, is the character of Amanda Waller and the perspective in that universe of the humans for whom there the idea isn't how do we regulate people at their normal selves, but how do we protect ourselves if these people go bad? And I think for me as well, that is also one of the really interesting things because I think one of the things that often happens is we often get stories where the people with powers are portrayed more as the hero and with good reason and the restrictions that are being put on them seem really problematic. But at the end of the day, some level of the hero argument seems to be you can trust us with our powers. Um, this is the, to me, it's the Captain America argument that always drives me so crazy in Civil War. Um, and there's many other times where it is because, and maybe here I'm cynical, I've always believed you don't make laws, you don't make legal systems. Really, that finished. You don't make laws, you don't make legal systems based on people being at their best. And especially in worlds where things like, you know, red kryptonite can cause Superman to do what he does, or people can be blackmailed or affected and mind controlled. There always has to be some concern about how do we handle things if things go really bad. Right. And Systems like that are always tricky because if you presume the worst of, of human behavior and then given that human the ability to, you know, with the power of their mind or wave of their hand, uh, they are suddenly a weapon. Right. Um, now you're talking about uh, having to effectively implement gun control laws, but on a person. Yeah. And that's a bag of cats we have not had to deal with. Right. Not, not really. Uh, you, you hear, there's the fiction of, you know, the person being licensed as a lethal weapon, you know, just with their bare hands or whatever. But, like, in reality, that's not... Right. Not, uh, not a real thing as far as I understand it. But when you're dealing with regulating a person because of the impact that their individual capabilities has, it's... That, that's a really sticky area uh, as far as as far as ethics are concerned. I think that from a protection, a societal protection standpoint, from, from keeping people safe, it's easy to make the argument, right? right? But it's easy to then twist that argument and turn it around into the into you know establishing internment camps for for powered people because it's the only way to keep society safe. Yeah. Because they're different, <laughs> and the way they're different is dangerous to us. Well, and we've talked before about the whole reason for this podcast existing is because we think these shows, are, these movies, these TV shows, these stories do such a good job not only of telling us completely fictional stories about completely fictional people, but of telling us stories that mirror questions in our own world. And we're talking about people with powers far beyond any we could imagine, but like the question you just brought up, that at the end of the day comes 100% down to how do you balance the rights of the individual with the rights of the community? Right. And that's a question that's absolutely a huge part of our own world. 
the idea of how do you legislate difference? And, um, you know, in our own world, the range of human possibility is much more limited than it is in the superhero world. But we still do have these kind of questions, you know? And, and you know, in most professional sports, there are, you know, in boxing, for example, there are weight classes because it's not that every human being is expected to be able to fight every other human being fairly. Um, some of those make a lot of sense. Some of those are being done by gender in ways that may make some sense to begin with, but also get really problematic in terms of as, as we expand our definitions of how gender works and, and that it's not quite the binary we thought it was. So the, the point being that all of these, I think, are questions that as esoteric as they seem in the comic book world, the superhero world, do come, do have mirrors in our own world, and it's something we've definitely talked about. I mean, certainly all the things about putting people on lists, yep. um, you can look at every fascist country that's ever happened. You can look at what is happening in this country with wanting to document immigrants and the like. Um, all of these things often have real-world parallels. And I think it is interesting and a good reflection of how our world would behave that in the stories where the powered people can come from anywhere, can come from any background, you have this narrative of how do we control them, how do we make sure we're safe. And in worlds where the powered people are in positions of power, right, where they're in the government, they're in the, you know, they're, they're the movers and shakers of the world, like the, the world of Avatar, um, it, that's not really the conversation now. Right. Because they're the people making the laws, so of course they're not going to regulate themselves differently than than others. I mean, obviously they, there are crimes that they can commit or actions they can take that unpowered people can't take. Right. But there's no extra scrutiny as far as we can tell. Well, and so let's start diving into some of the specific questions that come up, because you're raising what is, I think, not the only one, but it's really in some ways the heart and soul of this, which is who has power? And to your mind, once you start having a population that has very different levels of power and of ability, uh, and you have a certain group of people who can do things beyond the wildest comprehension of another significant part of the population, how does that start changing things in terms of, like, what do you think are the questions that come up in terms of who holds power? So, power is an interesting uh, word here, and I like that you've chosen it because power in the example I was describing just a little bit ago uh, is held by the same people. There are two different kinds of power, right? There's the power to um, control societal change or control legal change or control how uh, the, uh, you know, how our societal constructs interact with these things. And then there's the individual power. There's the supernatural powers, right? right. The ability to affect the world around you. The question of who has the power in each of those specific instances directly informs what the responsibilities of those people are. If you have the ability to affect massive physical change uh, or what have you because you have these magical supernatural powers and you also are a, a world leader, right? right? You have two forms of power, both of which can affect substantial change for the world around you. And that increases your level of, of accountability more than if you had either of those individually. Yeah. Right? I, I think that's a really important distinction to start with, especially because, and, and I would sort of name this, I, and in all these things, like we're, we're trying to answer broad questions that are going to be very different in each specific of the context we name or any of the other ones that people can think of. 
But I would say to me as a real starting point, one of the first things that's going to make me be very suspicious and very concerned is if the simple fact of having these supernatural or superhuman abilities is what gives people political power. Um, I am... I, I, I have a very egalitarian spirit, and I am generally not comfortable with stories that seem to be framed around, like I said, the kind of one version of Magneto that, that posits him as believing that mutants are a higher evolved form of life and therefore get to hold power over their lessers. Um, and, it, it, and it's part of why I like those stories so much, though, is because I think as much as there's a part of me that wants to say, I need to believe that just because you can fly and just because you have superhuman intelligence, that, that one in particular, or any of these other things, you don't get to have a more powerful vote than I do. I think it's very hard to conceive of a world in which people would be that much more powerful than a normal human and not to some degree start thinking that they deserve that. Um, right. Like, I... Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, like, we, we kind of touched on this a little bit with, with uh, Red Sun, in that we noted that it was something that made Superman exceptional, is that he could hold all of that personal power and still hold the belief that he should be accountable to others. Right. Right? Um, and it, it is a... It's something that, like, I, I understand why you would be cautious of those stories because it is a very troubling narrative when the people with all of the the people with all the magic, right, are also in direct control over their world. That sounds pretty tyrannical, right? What agency do the the common folk have uh, against a, a government, a governing body that has all of this supernatural power backing it as well? Right. Um, now, there is a very troubling narrative you can make around the Second Amendment that we're not going to get into about <laughs> this, but it, there's a parallel to be drawn there, right? right? The uh, some, some proponents of the, uh, of the Second Amendment rights believe that the reason why people should, have, should be entitled to firearms in, in the United States is so that we have some agency to overthrow a corrupt government. And, and I, yeah, we're not going to get too into that. I fundamentally right. disagree with that because I think there's a, there's a number of misreadings in history in that, in that perspective. But, but I think in terms of the discussion we're having today, you are correct. And that especially as more and more, you know, it's one thing to think of that our current American government has all of this military power. That gets quadrupled when they also have all these supernatural human powers. Right. Um, and I think in some ways that, that's kind of a low-hanging, like and I, I named it, so I'm, I'm talking to myself here. It is somewhat the low-hanging fruit. To me, where the story really gets interesting, though, is like I said, when you start asking, how is it possible to ask people who have those powers not to see themselves in that way? And, and I, it's not that I don't think we should. I think we need to. But like, just to give an example where I think this happens in our own world, um, I know that I have had many times where I have looked at political results and I have looked at the factual inaccuracies and misunderstandings of basic science or of basic fact held by people who also hold political views different than my own. And it's really easy to fall into a narrative of, gosh, there should be an IQ test of who could vote. And I don't believe that for a second, but I know it's a thought that's occurred to me. And I know that in our world, 
that is, a, you know, I every day I go on Facebook or Twitter and I see people who in theory agree with me politically who very much hold that view. Um, certainly an awful lot of science fiction. I, I've mentioned this before, how much I dislike a lot of Robert Heinlein. Um, I think Robert Heinlein had some wonderful ideas and some, he's a very good writer, but he is very much a intellectual fascist. He's very much of the perspective of the problem with humanity is that the stupid people get to make the decisions and that if only the smartest people were the ones making all the decisions, then everything would be better. And right. And from the conceit we've talked about before, where there's this presumption that intelligence is a is universal, right? right? Where if I'm smart about one thing, I have equally great intelligence about literally everything on the face of this green earth, and that is not how it works. Right. And it, it's, it's very sort of narrow definition. Like, how do you define the most intelligent? Right. And, and I, to me, I don't even though think that's the question, because I still think the, as an egalitarian, to me, and I, an intellectual aristocracy, even if it was accurately picked, I think I'd still have real problems with. But I think it's a real human temptation. And I think there's a part of me that would raise my eyebrows every time I see a story about someone who says, yes, I can shoot lasers out of my eyes and, you know, do incredible feats but I think I should have just as much political power as anyone else. I, I think the, the, hu the human temptation to feel like I am better than someone else, they are inferior to me, and thus I should hold a higher place of power. I mean, all of human history points to the fact that that's a very strong temptation. Right. I mean, and look at, uh, look at Batman. He's a great example of somebody who clearly doesn't believe that. He has a lot more means than other people in the world and he uses those means to enact the change he wants to see on the world right the, the entire character of batman is when you boil it down somebody who had an opportunity to seize control over some portion of the world around him and took it right because he had the, he had the power to do so in this case power was you know he had the he, he had the detective skills and he had the, the um, fiscal means mm -hmm. to fund a bunch of magical toys that he now gets to play with. Yeah, I mean, I have said before, Batman is probably my favorite hero in this whole wide universe, and the many universes, but is also, I think, a very problematic one for exactly the reason you're talking about, because there's nothing egalitarian about him. And in a lot of the stories, um, he he's very clear about that, that he thinks that he has... Um, uh, in, in the sort of Justice League stuff that I was that I was talking about before, um, he often becomes one of my favorite characters because he's the one who's the most cynical. He's the one who's always Amanda Waller. Um, he he's the one who has the most sympathy for her because he is very much on the. Of course, Superman might turn bad. Of course, Wonder Woman might turn bad. What I think redeems him, at least in those stories, is um, and there's one particular episode I believe it's of the Justice League animated series um, where specifically Amanda is sort of saying, well, but why do you think you're any different? Which is when he says to her, I don't, that's why I need you. Mm -hmm. Because he is just as clearly saying, just as much as Superman can go bad, just as much as Wonder Woman can go bad, I could go bad and someone needs to protect us from me. Right. And it's, and we've talked about this particular theme before, where when you've got power, regardless of whether you seized it, uh, or whether it was, you, whether it was innate, right? Whether you were born with it, like in the case of Superman, Right. or the mutants um, there is a there is an ethical compulsion for you to hold yourself accountable to the privilege that extra power gives you right 
and what that allows you to do. Uh, and it's true in real life too. Like we don't need to have supernatural powers to have this dilemma, right? right? Privilege exists in all kinds of situations. Um, I say as the most privileged person in the car right now, uh, <laughs> right? You, you can be in a position in your life where you have more more capability to enact change or more capability to to uh, be heard, right, than some others. Right. And what's important is that you acknowledge that that privilege, that power that you have, to so that you can then hold yourself accountable for your actions, um, hopefully through others. But at the bare minimum, asking yourself the question of, you know, should I be doing this? Is this correct? Or am I taking advantage of my position, of my capabilities? Well, and so that's a good way to, to actually, I, I want to frame a question this way. And let me also just say, um, uh, I am also a person of an immense amount of political of uh, political and social and financial privilege. Um, Jacob's referring to the fact that I am disabled and he is not. Um, there's probably many other ways in which uh, privilege dances back and forth between the two of us. But but I'm certainly very much a privileged person as well. But, but let me ask you this, Jacob, because I think this ties into a lot. You know, the Spider-Man line that, that comes from uh, his uncle is, with great power comes great responsibility. Right. Do you agree with that? I do. Okay. I, I actually feel that, and I mean, we've had this conversation a little bit. I feel like there's a distinction between responsibility and compulsion to act. Right. Right? I feel as though when you have, when you have power, the actions that you choose to take, there needs to be accountability to those actions need to be held accountable to them. Um, if your decision is to not use your power, that is that, I guess what I'm saying is you don't have a responsibility to use it, but if you're going to use it, you have a responsibility to use it ethically. Okay, well, because that, I think, is an interesting dynamic. Um, and granted, I'm not as much of a Spider-Man expert as some others, and please write in if you have thoughts on this. But as I understand it, I think Uncle Ben would disagree with you pretty much. I know Uncle Ben 100% disagrees yeah, with me. Because, I agree. Because that his, his understanding of it is... You know, if you have the ability to do good, you know, and you have the power to do good, then you absolutely should. And I wrestle with that one because on the one hand, I think that what a good statement to people of privilege. Mm -hmm. You know, you have the ability to help the poor, you should help the poor. You have the ability to help someone across the street, help them across the street. But that's also where noblesse oblige comes from. Right. You know, that's where the idea of I have the power to help these poor people. And so I need to help these poor people in the ways that I think, which very quickly becomes, I know what's best for them and all of that. And so th that's why I asked that, because I think in some ways that one question is at the heart of what this is about is, if you have significantly more power over someone else, what is your responsibility towards them? And how do they have agency in that? You know, because right. I think that's where it, I think there is something to be, I can understand why someone's saying like, I am a near godlike person. I have to protect these people. But to what extent do they have to ask you to be protected? Right. And it's, some, it's a question that Superman stories very rarely ask. Um, and I think like with good reason, that's not the narrative, right? right? But they could very easily, you could very easily see a circumstance where uh, we have what happened in The Incredibles, where Mr. Incredible saves somebody, right? This is the, the opening narrative of the movie. He saves somebody, uh, but in the process of doing so, the person gets injured, right? Has a neck injury or something to that effect. Um, and there's this whole, like, you know, he didn't ask to be saved. He didn't want to be saved. And 
and Mr. Incredible is held accountable for the consequences of his actions by making the choice for that other person. Yeah. And at the end of the day, I think that's fair. It's it's very weird because like I feel like the 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 idea of the the Good Samaritan, right? The idea of if I'm able to help you, I should. If I can like save your life or what have you, um, like that that gets you into trouble. Like if you're say you're a medical professional, right? Uh, somebody doesn't want to remain on life support, for example. Like, what's well, your what's your moral obligation? You have the power, yeah. right? You have the power. What are you supposed to do? And that's I think I think mean, I think that raises a really good question is. Because at the end of the day, like, if aliens want to blow up the planet, I think we can assume that most people probably don't want the planet to be broken up, and heroes can probably assume that most people, well, given the current state of humanity, maybe not <laughs> most of us, because maybe I'm not even sure I am, but you know what I mean, like, a, a cat- stopping a cataclysmic global destruction event, right. sure. But the question then, I think, it becomes more and more, as you go, as you push further, what is the definition of helping? Because what is the definition of who gets to decide what helping looks like? Mm-hmm. You know, and I think not even when you talk to the medical, I don't even want to go as extreme as the uh, the euthanasia kind of case. Um, I used to work at a disability rights law firm where a lot of our um, clients were people who had fairly severe mental illnesses, but were still living what were for them livable lives. And they lived in squalor or they lived in situations that other people would look at and be very judgmental of, but they weren't an active threat to their own life and they weren't an active threat to the safety of anyone else. So the question becomes, can other people help them by forcing them to go on their medication? Um, That's a very complex topic and I'm not going to try to get into it here. I will say in general, I'm I'm very much on the subject of of we let the people decide. but I think that's the thing, especially if you're a person with great power. Um, like I, I appreciate even in some of the Spider-Man stories more recently, we have some, and they're often portrayed for comedic value. But you sometimes get moments where Spider-Man kind of assumes someone needs to be helped and leaps to their defense, only to realize he has fundamentally misunderstood the situation. Uh, I think there was one Spider-Man comic where he thought he saw someone, you know, being attacked, and it winds up he's interfering with a movie set, you know, yep. something like that, and. But with any of those things, and I think that becomes another real question, is if you're a person in power, at the end of the day, I always want accountability and I always want agency. And I think I, I, think I mentioned this before, that um, I am very uncomfortable in any situation where one person is both sort of the arbitrator of law and the enforcer of law. And the more of a society where you say, the people with great power are going to be asked to enforce the power of the state, the power of the law, whatever it is, sure, but then they should have as little to do with the actual deciding of what that law is. Um, or at least less, no more so than anybody else. Right. It, it, gets, it gets tricky, uh, we, especially when you're trying to apply this to real life, because you could argue that, you know, in, in this day and age, uh, if you have any kind of significant social presence, then you have power to, to enact positive change. And that's why when, when you asked me about the great power, great responsibility, and I, I pivoted it into a compulsion to act, right? Because right. I feel like saying that you sh- you are required to do that um, when you don't necessarily have all the information or 
when your idea of what is best might not match up with with who you would be affecting. Right. Right. And that's and that's tricky. And sometimes, yeah, you end up having people are in positions where they end up having to make a decision that affects other people, and they make the best decision that they can. But it's the the responsibility I feel is is it comes into play more even after the decision is made. But like before the decision, you you vet it, you think about it. But like afterward, if it turned out that it wasn't right, part of accountability is is some form of reparation, right? Some form right. Of, of remedy, uh, and that that I feel is where the real responsibility of rape power plays in. Yeah. Right. Where you're you're not done with it just because you did a thing that you felt was right. And I like that a lot more because then now it's no longer about you have the power, you have the responsibility to use this power to, to go out and fix everything. It's not calling you to be a white knight, but instead it's saying you have the responsibility to really be observant and analytical and discerning to try and figure out when are the times when your power is needed or not. And that's where, and it's something I think I've come back to again and again, it's that to me, I'm always going to be happier in a situation where it is the people without the power asking the powered people to intervene, asking them to help. Um, and, and at the end of the day, I think the thing that I tend to be the most afraid of is gut instinct. It's the trust. It's the, you know, and this is in our own world, is that at the end of the day, I don't want a world in which we say, cops, you have guns, but we trust you to do your best. You make your decision. I want there to be objective standards that are set about when police violence is justified and when it is not. I think it was never justified, but you know the point. In the same kind of way, and again, the movies didn't really highlight this and they changed the question in a way that frustrated me because I do think the Sokovia Accords that we wind up getting are not this. But when I watch Civil War, I do want there to be some kind of a Sokovia Accord because, you know, I look at Cap's training Black Widow, uh, not Black Widow, um, Scarlet Witch. And, you know, the, the incident that happened largely has to do with was Scarlet Witch properly trained in how to deal with difficult situations in the field? And for anyone who hasn't seen it, basically it's like she's attempting to prevent one disaster and she winds up that causing another one. There is a very good argument to be made that what she did was um, uh, basically like harm reduction. And that she caused the deaths of 20 people instead of 2,000 or 200. There's another argument you made that says, but no, either A, that wasn't her place to make that decision, or B, there would have been a third option. Right. But at the end of the day, I don't trust her to make that decision. I don't trust Cap to make that decision. I want there to be some object. Nothing's really clearly objective, as we were right. talking about earlier, but some kind of body that is attempting to be objective that more importantly also has a written down set of a code of behavior that they're supposed to follow. And and maybe I put too much trust in things like written down rules and laws over gut feelings. But I think with all this stuff, that's at the end what I want is I want, I feel like people, the problem with people with powers is that they so fundamentally break the rules of humanity. They, and so it feels like all of the normal laws and standards and guidelines don't apply to them. So what I most want is just for a democratic process that involves everybody that comes up with a new set of standards that handles those people. Yeah, and I mean, I understand where you're coming from 
there, I think that it is unreasonable to expect every decision to be evaluated against such a standard. There are always going to be situations where, especially if you're an action hero, right, in, right. in these universes, where you need to make an instantaneous judgment call and there is no guideline established and you don't have time to put it forward to a committee because inaction in and of itself causes harm. Sure. Right? And so some action is better than inaction possible. Right? Well, let me use that model, though. Right now, and granted, you and I are both very critical of the current cop situation, but even in a situation where we had a just police system, there's going to be an understanding that there are going to be very good guidelines and rules that help teach cops when they should use force and when they shouldn't. But still, there's an understanding that that the, the, the police officer is going to have to trust their discernment, their split-second judgment, as you're saying in the moment. But that because they're a police officer, they are officially licensed representative of the state, and therefore the state gets to regulate them. Right. Do you think there should be people with supernatural powers doing justice who aren't... Like, do you think they that all of them should be regulated by the state in some way? Or do you think that that is, is too much? In, in order for it to be legal, I think that's only fair, Right. Uh, the, the thing is, like, if we should hold them to a different, like, than a different standard than we hold you or I. If I go out uh, and with similar means to what the police have, right, I go out with my own set of firearms and, and fight crime and stop, stop crime, right, I am a criminal right, for doing that. I don't think having powers changes that calculus at all. In fact, I think that it makes it more important that we make sure that if you're intending to do these things, that it is either state-sanctioned, right? Because that is the the, the role of um, the the role of a a government in that situation, the role of enforcers in that situation is to enforce legality. If you're not authorized by effectively by the people, because it comes down from eventually it comes from an elected position, who gets the who gets this power? In theory. Right? In theory, right? Um, we, could, we could talk for a very long time about how that system works, but um, at the end of the day, enforcement uh, and execution of enforcement of the law is under the purview of our of our socialized government. And if you've got people operating outside of that, powers or no, we have to treat them the same way. And if it's right. no powers, we would treat them as criminal. I don't see how we wouldn't treat them as criminal if they had powers. And, and I think, I mean, it's important to name. I agree with you on that in theory. The reality is 90% of our heroes in these stories are vigilantes. Yep. Because they're often exist. For that to work, the state has to be fundamentally sound on some yep. level. And I don't think it is fundamentally sound in our own real world. I don't think it's, and it's certainly not fundamentally sound in all these other worlds. And... I think this is why, and we're getting, I think this is part of the topic, it's interesting how we're kind of wandering somewhat, but I think this is actually a, a point that is very important to me. I enjoy a good vigilante story, because I do think that's one of the hardest ethical decisions, is when to say, you know, even though this is wrong, this is illegal, I need to be a vigilante, I need to do something, because the state is failing. And I think that is a... I, I, it's funny, and it sounds like I'm taking this both ways. I'm not trying to, but I sort of am. I agree with you that that should always be an illegal act, but that I do think also that sometimes the most moral act is to disobey an unjust law. Right. And, and, and where I'm going to that, though, is that I think it's not coincidence 
that my favorite stories are ones where, like, I think you get a character like the Punisher, who just says, you know what, I know what's right, and anyone who thinks I'm wrong is stupid, and so I am totally morally justified in being a vigilante. That's my least favorite. My favorite is Batman and Daredevil, because both of them hate the fact that they have to be vigilantes, at least on some level. And as we talked about, sometimes they like it more than they want to, Right. but... Both of them, I think, agree with us that being a vigilante shouldn't be a good thing and shouldn't be a real thing um, and shouldn't be a legal thing, but that they live in such a broken society that it's necessary. Um, or, or rather, that they think it's necessary. That they think it's necessary. Right. And they, and, and that hopefully they have someone else that they're asking. And it's part of why The Dark Knight is probably still, that or Logan are my favorite movies of any of these stories. Because as I see it, that's the fundamental question of The Dark Knight, is Bruce Wayne, Batman, is trying to figure out what can he do so that society doesn't need him anymore. Right. And I think that's another really interesting way of looking at that power is, how do you not say to yourself, how do I keep this power, but how do you say, I'm in a situation where I shouldn't have to have this responsibility. How can I use my power so that I no longer do? I'm... I come from a slightly different position. I enjoy the vigilante justice stories. Don't get me wrong. They're good stories. They're fun. There is an element of power fantasy there that I find very uncomfortable. Mm, um, and, and always have. Because I, I like to examine my positions on things. And try to think, if I didn't trust myself, how would I feel about my position? Right. And I often come away from those situations. And from evaluating characters like Daredevil being like, you know, you just change Matt Murdock's moral compass just a hair to the left, and suddenly he's a villain. Yeah. Right? And, and like, look at how I responded to the first part of Daredevil Season 3. I actually, straight up, was saying, no, Matt Murdock's a villain this season. It's really yeah. weird. Uh, because of how he was behaving. Well, I think a lot of it comes down to what you just said about, do I trust myself? Because, and, and I, I've said this a bunch, we've both said this, but for me it was a big part of the, my feelings about Daredevil. I, I think it's not coincidence that Daredevil Season 2 is both my least favorite season of Daredevil, and it's also the season in which he spends the least time being accountable to others. Because he is just trusting himself. you know, And that's why the Tony Stark argument in Civil War makes so much sense to me, because Tony Stark is saying, look, I did trust myself. I thought I was doing the right thing and the good thing when I built Ultron. And look at how terribly that went. And that's... That's the whole, right, that, that's the big conversation, is that when you have power, right, it's important that there be an, that there be accountability and that there be mechanisms in place to ensure that that accountability is active and is not solely within your own control, right? right? And some stories accomplish this in ways that are themselves problematic. You could argue the entire foundation of the cycle is all about holding telepaths accountable. Because the only person that can police a telepath, the only person that can tell the telepaths are doing something they are not supposed to, is another telepath. Right. Well, and in that same regard, like, at the end of the day, unless they can get their hands on kryptonite, the only one who can really tell Superman if he's doing something wrong is Wonder Woman, because she's the only one who could, you know, or, or some combination of other superheroes. We right. We debate in that who's most powerful. Um, it's also why I think, and kind of getting us back to the original question, I think at the end of the day, some kind of a balance of power between different groups becomes so important. And we're 
I don't want to just keep this metaphor going, but I think it's a very helpful one. If we think about, because most superhero stories are about them using their powers to stop evildoers, to stop criminals, to stop threats. To some extent, on some level, we're always talking about superheroes playing either a police or a military function. And one of the things that I know in those worlds has become so important is the civilian review board. You know, it's the idea that you don't just let cops police themselves. You don't just let the military police themselves. You have to have outsiders, the people who don't have that power, be part of what holds them accountable. Yeah. And I think that's, again, why, and again, she's often portrayed as a villain, I think with good reason, but Amanda Waller is so often one of my favorite characters because she's, she is very much on the side of we, the non-powered people, should get to have some degree of holding you in check. And again, that can get very dangerous too because then that can get, so let's just have a nice happy list of all of you. Or it can be, let's build the Sentinels that will keep track of it. You know, it's, it's all of these questions. I think the reason why they're such good questions is we're trying to find the razor thin safe area knowing that going too far in either direction becomes really problematic. Right. And, and it, it gets to the point, right, where you end up with the, the, the situation with the Sentinels, like mutants basically are illegal. In, in that particular universe, right. right? And they just need to be contained according to the people in power. In, in political power, again, there's two different forms of power that we're talking about here, and they're sometimes at odds, right? which is honestly less troubling than when they're both in the same place, but uh, they, they each have their problems. And the big problem with, with when they're at odds is when it becomes about, when it becomes more important to control the potential threats, the potential for, for bad, than it does to respect uh, the sanctity of an individual's freedom. Right. Right? Which is why the psych horror can be a problem. Right? And why we have uh, the, the, the whole Sentinels rounding up the mutants business is just worlds of bad. Mm-hmm. It's never been portrayed as a positive thing in any other fiction. What do you think is a, in one of our fictional stories, where do you think there is a good example of a balance being struck where the powered and the non-powered are getting along in a somewhat equitable, healthy relationship? I mean, usually that doesn't make for good stories, so that's not, that's not very common. Um, boy, that's a hard question. I'm sure there is, like... Funnily enough, the very first one that popped into my head was uh, actually My Little Pony Friendship is Magic. Okay. Um, I'll admit that's not a world which I am familiar with. <laughs> but, which I take no shame in on either side. But So tell me more about Friendship well, is Magic. Th- th- so like to very, very broadly summarize, um, the there there are uh, unicorns, pegasus, and earth ponies right, okay. in, in the world. And each... So the unicorns and the pegasus seem to have more like power power because the unicorns have actual literal actual magic that they can use with their horns right and the pegasus can literally fly right but there is not a there there's not been a plot line where there's tension because the earth ponies can't do any of those things they're still valued in their society and they have a place Mm. right and so that's and part of it is probably because the children's show and they don't want to go there but it is it is the first example I can think of where it's like, okay. oh, everyone's just getting along. <laughs> that's the whole freaking point of the show is it's about, you know, respecting each other's differences and, and celebrating each other rather than yeah. uh, 
highlighting and, and, and dividing, right? Um, while I was doing that, there was, um, there's the first series of Avatar The Last Airbender, other than, yeah. like, it was far more about one government abusing power than it was about any of the individual uh, benders abusing right. power, right? And there, like, the benders were seen as, like, uh, people within their society who are highly valued, who um, who have a, a place, and their place was to help protect their people from the the invading forces, from from the military of the uh, of the bad guys. Right. Um, but yeah, it's not seen as being overpowering that regard. Right. Exactly. It's not until horror where we actually get any kind of narrative about how, how okay, well, we're at peace basically. So now, what is the, why is the power dynamic? Why does the power dynamic appear to be so much in favor of the vendors? I, I think those are good examples, and I don't actually bring in. Um, I've, I've talked about it. It's kind of a negative thing, but I actually think that the examples I've used used are about ways this particular world gets to a fairly equitable place, which is I do think that the the DC Justice League world is better at this, and that there is. You know, as you and I have talked about, Superman and them are often very clear about how they defer to civilian authority. And there are questions raised about what are the methods of the civilian authority and what are the methods of the, the heroes. And there's tension there. But there is a clear kind of understanding of here's how we're going to try to inter, interrelate. Right. Um, um, yeah, because I think you're right. There's not very many, in part because you're right, it doesn't make good storytelling. Um, and I'll say, I do think also that there are times when I think the author thinks that it's a better situation than it is. Yeah, um, for sure. And I will say, like, again, to me, that's my, I don't know if it's true yet, so no spoilers, because I'm, uh, that's my concern about Korra, is that the writer wants it to be a better situation than it is. Certainly, I think, although later writers have acknowledged that, that was one of the problems with some of the Star Wars stories, is that I think, because to me, the Jedi are a perfect example of what we're talking about here of people who absolutely set themselves apart and set themselves above and think they are better than everyone else. Um, Professor X, I think, is another one where um, on a very early episode of this podcast, um, a friend of mine named Professor Greg Haley came on and we did an episode specifically about how we thought Professor X is one of the biggest villains of comic books because he's someone who is constantly deciding what he thinks is right and what is best for people and making those decisions without any input from them. He is, until some very recent versions, almost always portrayed as a hero. Mm -hmm. um, but he, to me, is an example where I think the author doesn't realize how problematic the use of the power is there. I mean, I feel, and that's all I'm going to say on the matter, I feel that they wouldn't have put the narrative in the season, in the first season, if they weren't aware of it. But... In, Cor in Legend of Korra. In, in Legend yeah. of Korra. And, like I said, we'll see how that one right. plays out. Um, I want to use an example of my thought process. Right. Now. But yeah, yeah, I understand the concern, and I understand the, like, because I think you could walk away from a lot of forms of media with that idea, right? Like, you could walk away from, you could walk away from Avalon 5 thinking that Straczynski thinks that uh, the psych, like, the way the psych war shook out is exactly the way it's supposed to go, <laughs> right? I don't think that. I think it's very realistic. Yeah. I think it was a, a very telling portrayal and, and a little bit cynical, but I feel more realistic than cynical on how a situation like that would shake out if Telepath spontaneously appeared uh, in our world. And, like, the X-Men stories are among the better for really making that question. Because it's funny, when, when you look at Superman, 
who, you know, his power's innate, and he's an outsider. He's Superman being the, the ultimate immigrant story, right? Um, and you look at how we look, how we portray that character in our media and the, the conflicts that we give him mm-hmm. versus the conflicts of the X-Men. And the only difference is the X-Men were once, at some point in their timeline, usually normal people who then spontaneously got powers usually around puberty. Right. Um, and now suddenly are being treated by society completely differently. There's a very strong metaphor there. Yeah. Um, and and one that does not go unnoticed. And they, they've been doing a good job of sort of adapting it with the times. But I find it interesting that when we treat the narratives that we tell, the stories that we tell treat people who were not powered and then became powered differently than people who were always that. And I'll admit, and I, I think you make a very good point there, because part of the idea is, at the end of the day, um, how much do you or do you not see yourself as still part of the same world as everybody else? You know, right. are you a human who has mutated and has powers, or are you a mutant? Right. And this is one area in which I've also, again, thought Professor X and the, you know, the, um, what's his, the X-Men, of course, yeah, that's, yeah, that's yeah. the group. Um, the, um one of the real failings or one of the real contradictions is he wants to say we are still human we are still like you we have these powers but we are not needing to be separate and different but then what he does is takes all these people at a young age and has them not live in normal society but live in a society completely surrounded by by, by their mutants Mm -hmm. and he does that for very good reason because as he points out it is not safe for these children to be with normal children Again, you, you, they're the problem. Normal versus mutant. That language itself right. is ridiculous and pejorative. But right. non-mutant versus like it, the otherizing that happens here is right. so. And yet, a person with mutated powers just sounds so awful. Well, I mean, you you can't not name it, right? Like that's right. the thing. You can't. I mean, somebody can do something that nobody else around them can do, and it's like nor do they ever have the ability to develop that. Like you have to have a name with that, and you you can't not make that distinction. It's very important. And here is where, and you and I talked about this a bit as we were getting ready for this. I don't think this is a problem necessarily, but I think it's an important thing to name when you're looking at the distinctions between powered and unpowered people, or mutants or non-mutants or any of those, as a metaphor for other distinctions in our world, which is that, you know, race is a social construct that, as a social construct, today has fundamental power and meaning and identity. But in a biological human capacity standpoint, race doesn't isn't really a biological thing that exists, and it certainly doesn't have a huge effect on that. Gender, yes, there are ways in which, in very broad strokes, with very broad generalities, gender-related sexual characteristics, I don't know the scientific term, you know what I mean? Secondary sex characteristics. Secondary sex characteristics and the like, you know, can have an effect on the the average range of people who are thought of, you know, as as having the the, the secondary sex characteristics of male or female. There's going to be generalized differences in terms of weight and strength and size and things like that. But that on an individual level, those things are meaningless, you know? The, there's very possible to have women who are going to be, you know, strongest than, than 90% of men and vice versa. Um, not to mention just that gender becomes so much more complicated than we think it is. Um, same is true for, for orientation, for so many of these other things. 
these are very real differences, but they're not, they don't fundamentally change the fact of us all being human and us all sharing a common humanity. As I think the X-Men and some other shows do a good job of pointing out, that's in some ways where the, the metaphor breaks down because, yeah, I would say a fundamental part of the human condition is that I have a need to communicate with other humans through speech or touch or um, nonverbal communication because I'm not able to read your mind. Mm -hmm. And so to say a person who is fundamentally able to read the minds of others, not that they're not human in a judgmental way, but that they are now, the, the differences between powered and non-powered people are very real and very tangible in a way that I think a lot of our social discussion about race and gender and all these things, as it should be, is saying, look, these differences don't matter. I mean, they matter in terms of cultural identity, but there's no difference in intelligence. There's no difference in strength. There's no difference in physical or mental or intellectual capability based on where in the world someone was born and to what kind of parentage. But there is being a mutant, you know? And so, it, 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 do you see what I'm saying? That I yeah. think that it's a way in which it's a very powerful metaphor, but it's also a different kind of situation. Yeah. Yeah, for sure, because when, when you, these these entities are presented to us as different to the point where they are not, we can't, we can't envision them as humans because we don't know humans who can do that. Right. Right? Um, I don't know a human who has to keep their eyes shut all the time or behind some weird Ruby Quartz nonsense or lasers come out. Like, I don't know Cyclops. Right. And, and it's funny because even as I say that, and as you said, it, I have this odd habit, unfortunately, that must drive Jacob crazy, where I will say something I think I agree with. <laughs> and then Jacob restates what I said, agreeing with me. And I realize, no, I don't actually agree with you. <laughs> but I, oh, it's on purpose. It's 100% on it, purpose it, when it, I restate. It, it's also known as, or I'm trying to set up Jacob as the fall guy. Um, but either way, <laughs> it, I think it's more that I want to add a caveat, which is that. Because I, I think the way you phrased it is so perfect, it gets to both the truth of what I'm saying and the flaw in it, which is, at the end of the day, is my not defining a human as a person who can shoot lasers out of their eyes because there's some objective definition of humanity or because I'm a person of limited experience. And again, look at the metaphor because it is certainly very possible that has happened in broad numbers in history and certainly still happens today that a person defines humanity as having light skinned or mm -hmm. defines humanity as having sexual attraction to a person of the other gender in a perfect binary gender system. And someone can say, well, I've never met another person. So they seem non-human. So I, I just kind of wanted to name that as I said that because I think it, it, it's one more way in which this is such an interesting question because right. it comes down to, can we even ever say that there is a objective idea of this is what humanity is and now a person has mutated beyond that versus is this a question of we have to continually keep expanding our definition of what is humanity i mean magneto would argue yes yeah. uh magneto goes around calling mutants homo superior uh which is a very loaded term yeah um but like the yeah that's tricky because is the ability like, if a bunch of people spontaneously develop the the capacity for sending, like, not, not even reading minds, just transmitting their thoughts to others uh, through a means other than the forms we use to communicate now, 
Right. Are they still human? Right? Or, like, do we do we adjust our, our definition of human to be like, and some humans can do this now, apparently. Right. Or do we say, you know what, no, you appear to have gone beyond what we consider the standard human experience to be. The important thing there, the important distinction there, is not to define them as subhuman. Right. right. Or like, to define any, yourself as subhuman. Right. Either exactly. way. Right. Is, is to not say is when you're drawing the difference, right? Whether you say these are human and these are no longer human is not creating a, a system where one is val- more valuable than another, right. right? That at some point, sentient life matters, right? And that's what we care about, right? Or sometimes just life matters, depending on your perspective. Uh, I know Paul and I could probably go many rounds yeah. on that particular topic. <laughs> Um, and that's actually a perfect example. Because I know this is one where I really wish Paul was part of this conversation because one of the things that Magneto does, and actually, and I'm even going to bring up um, uh, a, a another moral situation, which we're soon going to have a guest, uh, another good friend of ours, Meg Baum, on to discuss moral systems in gaming. Um, and I know one of the ones she wants to talk about is the morality system in the Vampire the Masquerade role-playing game. And here they get into a very interesting idea, very similar to what you're talking about. The, the whole game is based on people being vampires. And there are some vampires who think of themselves as kind of humans plus. They are humans, but they have these extra abilities and these extra limitations because they're vampires now, but that they still hold a moral responsibility towards other humans. There's another group of vampires, the Sabbat, who are... One of the reasons I love the Vampire the Masquerade game so well, so much is there's never a clear good guy or bad guy. Every every faction gets to tell its own morality from its own perspective. They are very similar to Magneto. They see themselves as Homo Vampiris. They are a further evolution of the human race, and that they now don't hold humanity on the same moral level that they hold the vampires. Mm-hmm. At first blush, that sounds horrifying until you realize every person except the most extreme vegan does the exact same thing already. I place higher moral value on the life of a human than I do on the life of a cow. And I, I yell at me for that, and I, I, I certainly think that and in the vampire game, the way they portray it is there are some people who act like we love the cattle, the humans. We want to take care of them. We want to nurture them. We want to have, you know, farm-raised humans and that kind of thing. <laughs> All the free, way, free range humans. Yeah, all the way to those who are out, outrightly sadistic and want to torture these animals the way some people today, you know, like dog fighting in ways that are, I think, morally repugnant and horrifying. Um, and the point is, I just love that because it's a good way of, of reminding us, like, it's very easy for us to think, like, oh, all hum- we would never make moral distinctions between life forms. Because we think all humans, all sapient life forms are on the exact same level. Reality is that's not true. We make, you know, the, the drawing the, the mental distinction between a human and a dolphin or uh, a chimpanzee is not as clear as it would seem. And I would imagine that, you know, in a world where you have like a perfect Professor X level of human intelligence, the line between Professor X's intelligence or sentience and a normal human's and a normal human's and a chimpanzee's. I don't know. If, I don't know which one of those would be a bigger gap, you know. Right. And I think that that it, it, it raises really good questions for us. Uh, um, and even you know, even in our own world, uh, there's a much smaller minority than like when it, with 
version where we're empowered, unpowered, but we do live in a world where there is a great degree of neurological and developmental difference. And a hundred years ago, that was 100% seen as people who are developmentally disabled or autistic or the like were thought of as subhuman. And that is a horrible, horrific idea that we are, we are rejecting entirely. And yet still, by some people's definitions of sentience, people with very severe uh, issues of developmental disability may not fit. Um, I mean, and, you say we're, we're backpedaling from it, but there are still, there's a section of our population that believes that it is more important to uh, disregard the science behind herd immunity than it is for their child to potentially maybe ever be autistic. Right. Yeah. And so I have very strong opinions about that. That's a different topic, but uh, yeah, autism is not a problem. No. Well, I, mean, I mean, it's a pro like okay, that's a very loaded statement I just made. But like, what what I mean is that um, treating people, treating your child getting autism as something worse than them potentially dying is horrific. Yes. Like, yeah, you and I are two, um, by many definitions, neurotypical people who. I think neither one of us is qualified to talk on that, but I think we're, right. it's very clear that what we're saying is a person with autism may define how their experience however they wish, but for the rest of us to define that as as not not a fully human experience in any way is, is horrific and wrong. Yeah. But I think that's the way in which these stories are metaphors for our own because right. that happens, you know. Yes. A hundred years ago, it was accepted human science that a non-European was an inferior moral and intellectual. And that certainly is still held by, you know, some of the truck stops you and I are passing right now on this drive <laughs> will hold t-shirts that clearly describe President Obama in those kinds of terms. You know, that these right. ideas are still alive and well. Right. Um, as we expected, we've wandered onto a bunch of different things and still yet I think only co covered one of the main questions we wanted to cover. But we've already passed an hour. Um, are there any other kind of big, one or two more big questions you want us to dive into? So I think that, uh... When you're dealing with a society that has powered individuals, some of the more fascinating stories I've found are ones where the powered individuals are are more or less fully integrated into society, but are... Oh, yeah. Yeah. The, that, 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 actually, that was the point yes. I was trying to make before we got on a tangent about Professor yes. X. That yes. I, so, yeah. So, I, I'm agreeing with you. Go on. Right. So, so like, um, and in our in our show notes, what I wrote down was the, the Mistborn trilogy as an example mm. of this, where... Uh, you have, uh, not to, to summarize the entire plot of the books, but basically you have metal ma metal magic, metal magicians, metal wizards. Metal you have metal wizards who can do a specific kind of thing with metal, um, and it does cool stuff, and there are different types of metal wizards, and the, the metal wizards within that society mostly come from the nobility, but not all of them. Mm. And the way that society is built, those... Uh, those individuals aren't like they're not the leaders but there's not a you know nothing makes their actions illegal they're right. just people who can do things that other people can't just like um you know i were to uh i'm trying to think of a good metaphor for this that that is like real life like if i have a car right and for some reason nobody else can have a car and like then i'm a taxi driver i'm an uber driver for the city right. or whatever right um that's basically how they appear to handle is like, oh, you can do this thing that nobody else can do. So, you know, that's going to be your, like, you get to leverage your career in that way. But otherwise, they're not treated any differently. Right. And so I think that's that's fascinating. And then you end up with, like, the, obviously the, the plot of those books has nothing to do with that, which is an interesting societal construct. Right. Um, 
but, go ahead. But, but there's this, it, it's less common because when your powered people are more or less fully integrated, that can't be your source of conflict. And so it's not really showcased, Yeah. right? Well, and I think part of the problem also becomes in the sort of egalitarian fantasy, the way that works is you have a car, but I have farming equipment and someone else has an x-ray machine and then we all have something we can contribute. And part of the problem becomes, you know, do you need to be a police person in a world where Superman and Wonder Woman exist? You know, like that there's some limit on how do you find a way to contribute? And one thing I do think is interesting is that a lot of these stories, the egalitarian kind of integration that you are talking about does exist within the mutant populations themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, because if you think about it, like in, people always like to sort of laugh and talk about superhero team-up movies, like who's the more or less OP, you know? Mm-hmm. Like Scarlet, uh, Black Widow, Black Widow and Hawkeye are pretty low on the power list compared to most of the rest of the Avengers, you know? And like, I don't know the X-Men well enough, but I know I've certainly walked away thinking like, some of those X-Men have powers that are much greater than some of the others. And some of the stories reflect that, but often there is, at least within the X-Men world, an idea of you can shoot lasers and I can read minds and you can control the weather. And we're not saying all those things are equal, but we're saying that we're all different and that's okay and that we're each able to do our own thing. And I think what you're right, what gets harder is a world in which to say, you have all these powers and I don't, we're still equal in some way. Because to do that, you you have to create a system where you're having powers makes you deficient in some other way that I, as a quote, normal person can make up for. Right. Which doesn't really often make narrative sense. Right. And I mean, the, the fact that the um, X-Men don't eventually end up like forming a hierarchy based on the, you know, the magnitude of their power capabilities is really kind of heartwarming in a way. Um, and same with the Brotherhood of the, the, the evil brother, Brotherhood of Mutants or whatever you want to call right. it. Right. It's just like, no, we're all people who agree about something, and we all have some way to contribute. Some people contribute uh, differently than others, like uh, Wolverine can't be killed ever, I guess. Yeah. Um, Professor Xavier is very, very good at controlling people's minds. Jean Grey is incredibly powerful uh, and just does all kinds of cool crap with telekinesis and also telepathy and also matter shaping. And <laughs> Jean Grey is incredibly powerful. Yeah. Um. And, it's like I'll scooch your lasers from his eyes. You know, yeah. they're all the same, basically. Well, although now that I've said that, once again, I'm going to disagree with myself for you. Um, <laughs> but but I, I, because I think my point was that, I think your point, those societies are mostly egalitarian and mostly right. non-hierarchical. Except that in both cases, there's one person who's clearly far above either. And I actually makes me wonder, is there ever a story in either the, where either the X-Men or the Brotherhood where there is some delineation of where Professor X or where Magneto gets their authority? Like, is he ever re-elected as head of the X-Men or as head of the, the you I know? I mean, he's headmaster of the school, and so, like, they get indoctrinated into that philosophy at a very early age. Right. I, like, their hero worship all up ends, right? Yeah. I think that it is a self-perpetuating system, more so than it is that, you know, he ever took a vote of faith or a vote of confidence from his... Right. So, so in that case, it's not that he's more powerful than everyone else. It's that he's much more of a manipulative bastard right. than everybody yeah. else. And in Magneto's case, he's a survivor, right? Yeah. Um, like, there's one point, I forget, like, I think it's in one of the, the uh, X-Men movies from the 90s, um, or was that the early 2000s, whatever, where um, the the evil mutants, the, the, bad, the 
Magneto's you know, people were all like getting tattoos to show solidarity. And they're all like, hey, Magneto, when are you going to get one? And Magneto's like, I've already gotten one. And no, no ink's ever going to touch this skin ever again. Right. He's talking about the, the one he got in the concentration camp. Yes, exactly. It's like, oh, oh, oh that's such a good moment. Uh, it's such a good scene for the character of Eric Lanshaw. Yeah. Um, I, Eric's one of my favorite characters in the X-Men series. Mine as well. I don't, I don't remember there being a, a story like that. Uh, it's funny, though, because thinking about the you know systems of hierarchy among power people reminds me of one of my more favorite anime in recent years uh, that obviously you've not seen, so I'm not going to go super deep on it. But there's a, sh- a show called Guilty Crown, wherein at one point there are people who have different powers that their leader can draw out of them, mm. and then he can give them to them to then use. And they end up forming a, a hierarchy around the perceived efficacy and usefulness of those people's powers. Oh, interesting. And it creates a society where some people are less valued than others, a sort of micro-society where people are less valued than others. And sure enough, the people who feel less valued uh, decide to try to do things to prove they're more capable uh-huh. than they're being portrayed, and it causes problems. It's a great story. Well, and that'll, I mean, yeah, granted here, my economic analysis is going to come up, but... To me, depending on how that story is told, you could see that as such a wonderful critique of capitalism. Oh, yeah. Because, and I think this is, um, sometimes you get stories about people with powers where it quickly becomes, how can you make your power financially useful to others? Right. Or, and, and it's the same of, like, great power comes great responsibility. Do you have a need to find social value or social good for the power you have? On the one hand, you can view that as a responsibility thing. On the one hand, you can totally view that as a capitalist thing. Yeah. Um, I'm remind, I, I think Hancock is the name of the movie. The uh, Will Smith movie? Yeah, where Will Smith is playing a person yep. who's got these inherent powers, and he has just no desire to use them to help anybody. Yep. And, and there's a ways, I, I like that story, I think it went, went off the rails in some ways, but I think I found him a much more sympathetic character than I think I was supposed to when I watched that movie. Because I think there is an even question there of, do you have, you know, people would come back to um, where, where, what, what is your level to find a way to be useful to society with your powers? And because I guess to me, there's a difference between if there's something really dangerous happening in the society and you could stop it and you choose not to, I think there's a moral problem there. But if it's a, you could use your skills to be socially beneficial and you choose not to, that to me, again, it's that individual versus community thing, you know, of like, right. Do you actually have a responsibility to sacrifice yourself in some way for the larger good? I, I, going back like two sentences, I actually think I, I disagree with you somewhat on the point of even if there is something like very terrible happening around you and you have the power to stop it, I think that it is it is morally good for you to do that. I feel like choosing not to do it, I don't know. I think it's, it's ethically charged. I think it's ethically problematic. I'm not sure that I'm going to sit there and say it's morally wrong to do that. I think... I think you're right. I can't make a blanket statement it's morally wrong. I think I'd be very curious and very suspicious of the morality involved. Right. And very... Uh, you know, a person would have to work hard to me. Like, I, I do kind of feel like, you know, you're crossing the street, you see a person fall down, and in an onrushing car, you decide, you know, if you're terrified, if you had been in an auto accident yourself and you are terrified and that stopped you from rushing to that person's aid, 
I don't think there's a moral failing. If you look at the fact that someone else is about to die and just think, eh, no big deal, and don't rush to their aid, yes, I see that as a moral failing. And those are two extreme examples, and you're right, finding the line between them, there's a lot of gray area. Right. But I guess, like, well, I guess where I draw the line is that if you are, if your system of morality is compelling someone to sacrifice themselves for the benefit of, like, sacrifice their, their livelihood, their well-being, for the benefit of others, I don't like it. Right, well, right. that's the word of the sacrifice. And that's right. what I like. The situation of, can I do this without great personal harm to myself? Right. <clears throat> I would argue in the unrushing car case, you can't make that claim that you can do it without great personal potential harm to yourself. But, um, you know, given sufficient time, given the right circumstances, yeah. And now it's all like, if you choose to do nothing, yeah. Like, why? I want to know why. Do you not care about other people? Right, but like, and, and I guess, and yeah, what you just said there is the most important, and this might be, this might sound like a word game, but I think from an ethical analysis point, it's very important. <clears throat> I think there's a difference between saying, "I am going to morally judge you if you don't rush to someone's aid." I have a problem there. I think a different way I would approach it is to say, "I think that a person with a well-formed moral standpoint." would see potential human suffering as a bad thing that they feel at least some desire to overcome if they could. And I am, I am, I will admit, morally judgmental of people who are able to look at moral suffering that is in some regard due to their actions or due to their interactions and not be bothered by it. Like, and this is, again, not to get off of my own politics, but like, sometimes you get into arguments with people about there being billionaires and it's not that my issue is it's not that I think there's some monetary number above which you become morally evil it's that I fundamentally don't understand how at some point the you're getting enough pleasure by having that much wealth that it makes you okay with the fact that you having that much wealth means that many people don't have it Right. Um, and that, again, not to get into that specific political issue, but I think it's a good example of what we're talking about, about at, at what point are you so unconcerned with the suffering of others that sitting and finishing your bagel is more important to you than rushing out to try and help someone? Right. And that's, again, a great, it calls back to the very first question of, of, of power, people who have it, and what, what role do they play in the positions where their power has, is useful? Right. In the case of the onrushing car, it's just, am, do I have the capability of getting that person in the street out of the way before the car could potentially harm either of us? If so, 100% agree. The correct thing to do is to intervene. Right. And if you don't do anything, I don't think you made the right decision. And you're also right that, the, I, I, this, you haven't said this, but I think it's part of what you're implying, there is something very dangerous about being the person who wasn't there could then look back later and say, I believe that you could have done it without putting yourself in danger. And right. that's, it's one of the things, again, that I think some of the, um, we've talked about these before, but the Elijah Wood Spider-Man movies, I think did a really interesting job of... Elijah Wood? Wasn't he the first? I what don't... Thinking of? No, you're thinking of, um, that's not Elijah Wood. Oh my goodness, now that you've said that, I can't remember. The, the one who was in 
the Spider-Man where Alfred Molina was Doc Ock, right? Right. You're thinking about him. With Willem Dafoe as... Yeah, as Green Goblin in the first one. Oh my god, why can't we not place this? Uh... And I can't even look it up on my phone, so we're recording on our phone. Anyway, we, we will, um... We'll figure it out later. It's 100% not Elijah Wood, and I had it on the tip of my tongue earlier when we were talking about it. But in those Spider-Man movies, he wrestles with that a lot, because in the act, like, there's, you know, there's some real questions asked about to what extent is he is he allowed to go have his own life? And the second Spider-Man movie, the, I'm sorry, the second Superman movie, I have a lot of problems with how it is presented, but I do think this is one thing that that movie gets right. And for anyone, this is the second uh, Christopher Reeve movie. Right. I grew up with those. I love those. They're very old, so a lot of our listeners may not know them. But the conceit is that he, uh, he basically realizes that he cannot have a normal life and he cannot love Lois Lane if he is Superman. And so he goes to the Fortress of Solitude and finds a way to use the, the Kryptonian technology to remove his powers and allow him to lead a normal human life. <clears throat> and then what happens later is he... Terrible things start happening to the world... And in part that he's kind of morally responsible for, not really, but he's at least morally connected to the criminals from Krypton, Zod, and all that. And he goes through this crisis of thinking, is it right that I am the only one who could have had the power to do this, and I chose to give up that power? And he decides that he needs to take that power back. And again, it's not handled perfectly. There's a lot of ways in which I didn't like the way it was handled. But I thought... a, it, it, it was an interesting way of exploring the question, but B, it, it is kind of the exception that proves the rule because Superman is true of a hubris that I think most of us fall into. And the hubris is, it's very easy to fall into thinking, if I don't fix this, no one else will because only I can. Right. And the truth is, that is true for Superman. It's not true for most of us. And it's something I know I saw in the nonprofit world all the time. You need to be able to check your ego a little bit to be able to say, you know what, if I can't save this person, maybe somebody else can, and maybe that's okay. Right. Toby. Toby McGuire. Thank you. We got it. We, we got, got there. It. I was like, I got Toby. <laughs> Not rumors, last name for the last name. We did it. All right, anyway. Um, yeah. I Actually, I also, I also grew up on the Christopher Reeve Superman movies, Reeve Superman movies, because I'm a very old. Um, Gene Hackman was He's my first Lex me. Luthor. I, yes, I agree. Oh, oh, yeah. Um, Hackman was an interesting Luther, uh, but like those stories were fundamentally different from the Superman stories they're telling today. Yeah. Right. Uh, but I did really like the the triad of Kryptonians that came in to shake things up in that whole storyline. Um, this is also during a time where Superman's like trying to just integrate. Yeah. Right. And that's the storyline where he chooses to try to give up his power so that he can just be right. like everybody else. He can love Lois Lane, he yep. can work at the Daily Planet, he can have that normal life. Right, he can have the life that he's always, that he's wanted since he came to, it's very, the again, very interesting story when you think about the metaphor that Superman is, um, where he's just trying to integrate with the people around him by giving away his extra power. Right. Like, what if, that is an amazing heroic thing to do where you're all like, you know what, nobody should have this, I'm going to get rid of it so I can be like everybody else. But then he turns out thinking that, no, I have to do this because nobody else can can beat Zod. Right. Right. 
you will kneel before Zod, and then you will do like this before Zod. <laughs> all of that. Yeah. Um, we're getting close to the hour and a half, uh, hour and a half mark. So I do want us to wrap up. Yeah, we should. Um, I, I think the one last thing I wanted to touch on, and we've touched on this a bunch already in other podcasts, in other episodes, but I just want to reiterate it because I think anytime you have a situation of some people having drastically different powers than other people. For me, the thing that is at the end of the day going to decide how healthy or how broken is the situation is how much fear is there on both sides. Right. Um, and I think it's part of where, you know, Babylon 5 is a perfect example of this because as you said there, there's no chicken in the egg. Like, it's hard to say, or is humanity more afraid or is telepaths more afraid? They're, you know, it's, 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 they both have legitimate fears. Um, in my favorite tellings of the X-Men, on the one hand, you could say Magneto is, you know, too driven by fear and he is too afraid and he's too much allowing that to control him. But you also get a lot of evidence that his fears are justified. Um, <clears throat> and in the end, Magneto is proven right in every yeah. X-Men story I've read. Part of why I love Logan so much is that at the end of Logan, Professor X was wrong. Like, humanity turns on the mutants in the way that Eric always predicted. Yep. Um, and I think that's and, and to take it back to the Justice League a little bit part of what Batman and Amanda Waller are the characters who are still very afraid and at some level they, they have right to be afraid and they should be afraid but most of the rest of humanity has come to terms with not being afraid and that's part of why that is a somewhat more peaceful situation so it's and I, and I think again there, that's a very powerful metaphor you know like look at the people who are able to incite people to violence and to hatred of immigrants and of gay people and of anyone who's different, it's almost always they use fear, you know, and I, 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 in some ways I think maybe that's one of the most powerful parts of the metaphor of these stories, the way it lifts up, the way that the danger of being afraid of difference and the way that that fear can be translated into resentment and anger and fear and hatred and all the rest. And used as a tool, and used as a tool to manipulate. Yeah. Right. Our fears, like fear, is a very natural response to to the unknown. And uh, the the overwhelming narrative in many of these stories is that uh, your fear, when properly channeled, is a good thing. But when manipulated, when used as a tool to influence you, uh, can bring out the worst of us. Yeah. And I think it's it's very it's a good cautionary tale to remember that, you know, when, when you're evaluating yourself and you use the, uh, I forget what conversation we were having, we were comparing a, a dichotomy to uh, parents and children. Yeah. Uh, do you remember the, the context for that topic? But like, it was the idea where like your parents, um, when you're a child, your parents have a ton of power over you. Right. And you can like some ways fear them. And so like, uh, some, some, I say, misguided parents will use that fear to help control their children. Right. But that actually just creates, that creates problems later on. And so, like, it's it's natural to be afraid of people who are more powerful than you. And so that's why when, when you have power over people, part of your responsibility, I feel, is to help mitigate those fears. Yes. Right? In, and when you are... The other person part of that is to really challenge your fears and say is this is this a real fear is, is, is this really a possibility 
or am I just living in, in the world of analyzing unknown unknowns and fearing and just literally fearing the worst? Right. Well, I think there's a couple things there. One is it, it goes back again to the Batman story that I keep talking about how much I love so much, The Dark Knight, and that the, the, the Christopher Nolan duology, because I hate Chris, Dark Knight Rises so much. Um, but, but what I think those movies get so well is this, that you know, Batman, like the way a good parent should be raising a child to not need the parent eventually, that Batman wants to build up Harvey Dent and wants to build up Jim Gordon to the point where they don't need Batman anymore. And then to some extent, I've always felt like at the end of that movie, Joker wins because he proves that that's not the case. Um, the, 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 the irony there being, of course, that Batman uses fear to mobilize people and, and all the problems thereof. Um, I, I also, though, I want to highlight in this movie with kind of our closing words, to me, one of the most important things you said in all that is when you said that um, uh, it's the fear of difference. Because like, I, I, am, I keep going back to what I was saying before, where I think I was, I was mistaken, of, you know, the, the definitions of humanity and all that, that at the end of the day, the thing is what we're finding is we're finding difference. And we're finding things that surprise us and things that are outside of our, like, this is what a person should be. This is what a man should be. This is what a human should be. This is what an earthling should be. And and I, what I hope the stories can remind us is to constantly challenge that and to constantly push ourselves to go further to say, wait a minute, this is different. This is outside of my bounds. This doesn't fit into my well-established structure, but maybe that's okay and maybe I can find a way to make, you know, to, to, to change my structure to allow this new thing to fit instead of just saying this thing is wrong because it doesn't fit. Yeah. So, I agree. Uh, so, uh, as we're closing out, I wanted to take the opportunity to, as always, thank our good friend Jack. Yep. Uh, wrote our music. So, Jack... Jack, if I'm pronouncing your last name wrong, please tell me. You, you have my number. Uh, Jack S? I believe that is correct. Yeah. All right. If it's not, please let me know. Names are important. Yeah. Um, and we really, really appreciate the music you wrote for us. So thank you so much for that, Jack. Yeah, thank you so much, Jack. Thank you to all of you, all the listeners. Uh, thank you to, we've been getting more and more people who are writing in, who are supporting us, who are sending us questions and ideas. Uh, and just, we're so grateful to us and all the people who just listen and just enjoy this at home and we never get to interact with you, but I know you're hearing this and thinking about it. You're subscribing. Thank you to all of you. Um, for those who want to support us, we still have the, we have the Patreon. It's Superhero Ethics on Patreon.com. Uh, there's a link in the show notes. You can also buy our stuff at the Tea Republic. We have some of the handsome um, T-shirts and, and mouse pads and all that kind of good stuff. But the, really the best way to support us is to interact. Um, send us a tweet. Find us on Facebook. On both Twitter and Facebook, we are Superhero Ethics. You can email us at SuperheroEthics at gmail.com. Uh, you can also find us, uh, each of us individually is on Twitter. Um, I am myself, Kate Ethicist. And Jacob, you are Bots Our People Too, where the R is the letter R. Yep, and again, both of those will be in the show notes. So, guys, thank you all for being such great listeners. Uh, we look forward to bringing you a, um, uh, a more stationary uh, experience coming soon. We've got a lot of great things uh, coming up. But thank you for listening. Thank you for supporting. Uh, and now it is uh, no longer time to be talking ethics. It's time for us to go be doing ethics. Have a good day. Sure. <laughs> this is life and death karaoke. Got out of town on a boat going to Southern Islands. Sailing our reach 
for a following sea. She was making for the trades on the outside. On downhill run to Papa Day. Neat the winds on this heading line, the Marquesas. Bring our head feet up one line. Nicely making way from the noisy bar in Avalon. I try to call you. Well, midnight watch, I realized, watch why she ran away. Think about, think about how many times I have fallen. Spirits are using me, larger voices calling. What heaven brought you and me cannot be forgotten. I have been around the world Looking, looking for that woman girl Who knows, you knows, who knows of Canada And you know it will And you know it will When you see that Southern Cross for the first time, you understand now I came this way. Cause the truth you might be running from is so small. But it's as big as the promise. Promise of a coming day. So I'm sailing for tomorrow. My dreams are dying. My love's like an anchor tied to you Tied with a silver chain I have my ship And all the flags are flying She is all that I have left And music is her name Think about, think about how many times I have fallen Spirits are using me Larger voices calling What heaven brought you and me Cannot be forgotten I have been around the world Looking, looking for that woman girl Who knows, she knows, who knows love And you know it Somebody find 
Sing that, we will actually figure out who's going to do which harmony. Oh. <laughs> <But> <laughs> Part of it is that I think like there's some lines where it's hard to actually tell. The, yeah. their, their blend is so good yeah. that it's well, hard to tell. Three of them, and it's hard to pick out just two. Right. Yep. Um, 